want to thank Neil. I want to thank the Canadian Bankers Association. I have no idea what the rules are around this thing. And so I realized a couple weeks ago that I had a banker who was coming and our sponsors are bankers. And I wanted to make sure that everyone was cool. So I, I, I checked with the Bank of Canada and they said no problem. And I checked with the Canadian Bankers Association, no problem. So I want to, I want to thank everyone for, for being uh, just kind of easy to deal with uh, this month. Um, and I want to let you in on, uh, after I thank our dear friends of the National Arts Centre who give us month after month after month access to what I think is the best room in Canada for this kind of conversation with the best view. And our friends at CPAC who help us to get all this interesting content out to Canadians. Um, it's a really good partnership that we have. I want to let you in on a bit of a planning um, consideration that I have. Uh, there's a federal election in October. And I decided last Christmas that I would try and get all the way through, through 2019 without having any elected members of parliament representing any of the parties as my guest. Because in an election year, it's just human nature, they're insufferable. It's all slogans. <laughs> <laughs> it's all attacks on the other person. It's all why the other party is just pestilential and you can't come anywhere close to them. But that presents a programming challenge for something for a program like ours because we need to have interesting guests who have interesting things that they're doing who are influential and matter to Canadian society and when I was thinking about who to get for this month um, suddenly it all came together everyone's everyone's watching what the Bank of Canada is doing everyone's got their eye on it and it's yet it's an institution that I think a lot of Canadians certainly your humble correspondent included don't really understand very well so I thought what better guest than Stephen Polaz, the governor of the Bank of Canada, and I'm really grateful to him for coming. Governor? And of course, you are a public servant, so I will emphasize that I'm the one who said partisans are insufferable, that you didn't say anything like that. No comment. I want it's the last time you're allowed to say that tonight. Okay. I want, I want to begin by thanking you for not raising interest rates yesterday. It was my pleasure. I was happy to take the care of that for you. Uh, yeah. um, yesterday was one of your uh, periodic uh, monetary policy announcements, and it was the third time you have passed up a chance to raise interest rates. Yep. What are the factors that go into a calculation like that? So it's interesting the way you put it, passed up on an opportunity to uh, raise interest rates. It kind of makes it sound like that's all we like to do, but it's untrue. Uh, but uh, really the way this works is uh, policy is made uh, roughly two years ahead of time. So uh, the staff are busy bringing all the latest data to their models and forecasting inflation two years down the road. And if forces are acting in the economy in such a way that inflation looks like it's going to go above our target two years from now, well now is the time to act to try to slow that down so that it does not go above our target. Because it takes, you know, so, well it takes six to eight quarters for our moves to, to affect inflation. So we're always making policy in the future. It's a really important uh, concept. Most people think, well inflation goes up today, you need to react. Well, it's way too late, which, you know. And the fact that inflation's on target today means you were doing the right things two years ago. And you recall, we, we had a rough period. You know, we had the, the major oil price shock uh, back at the, uh, the end of 2014 and into 2015. So the fact that inflation's been on target for the past two years suggests that all that turned out 
pretty well in the end. But now uh, we've got some forces acting that are a bit new. Another oil shock, which is you know, from uh, late last year, but also what's more important, I think, is a global shock, which is the trade war. So some 47 countries uh, around the world have observed exactly the same slowdown that we've seen, and it takes the form of reluctance to invest. So companies, think of yourself as a company, you rely on a trading system, you know, rules of trade, sell your products, and suddenly they're in doubt. You know, people are putting tariffs on things, steel, aluminum, and then counter tariffs on lots of things. And so it makes your business model a little in doubt. And so you don't invest that extra money at a time when you really ought to be or want to be. You hesitate. You stop or slow down. And it's done that all around the world. And so we're being affected by the same thing. Okay. In your announcement yesterday, you said that there are four um, uh, broad baskets of policy considerations uh, or of data considerations that affect your, that, that affect, affect your call. Uh, right. Oil, trade, housing, and fiscal policy. Can you walk us through those? So uh, oil is, is the most obvious one. Uh, you recall perhaps in October, November, December, not only were world oil prices uh, rather weak uh, compared to the been lately, uh, we also had a, a situation where Canadian oil was selling at a huge discount uh, to the world, world oil price. And in that context, uh, you know, that just means less income for not just for oil producers, but for Canada in, in general. So that's a, a negative shock to, uh, to Canada's income, our exports, et cetera. And so uh, what's that happened now is that uh, oil companies uh, in Alberta in particular are saying, well, those investments we had in mind, we're putting those off for a while. You know, the, the future of pipelines is unclear, uh, combined with the low pricing, the lack of revenue that quarter. Revenues have come back, you know, because the, the actions were taken. But the uncertainty persists about when will we be able to ship growing uh, supply. And so in that case, they've decided they're going to cut, in, cut uh, investment by about another 20%. They cut it 50%, you know, so now we're back in the last time. So we're way below levels we were at when oil was 90 or $100, understandably. Um, so that's, that's oil. Uh, so we think that that's basically a temporary thing because investment cuts take time, but when they're done, the rest of the growth in the economy continues to take over. So uh, it's, it's, it's a transitory phenomenon. It still means that Alberta is being adjusting, adjusting to those forces, and that'll take time, but I don't mean it's over. Uh, but from a macro standpoint, it will influence the data less, our growth rate. Um, if, we, if we look at the, uh, I already talked about trade, I mean, and, and we have a special consideration here, not just the global trade war, but the uncertainty about Kuzma, or new NAFTA, uh, which is now in doubt around uh, ratification. So we had a sigh of relief last fall when we got the signing, uh, but now the uncertainty's kind of come back. So that delays investment further. Uh, the third thing we talked about was housing. So housing's been a persistent issue for us. It's, uh, you know, we've gone from boom to bust, of course, with lots of uh, new policies put in place. Uh, we think in the last three months we've come to understand it better and put out some new research on that uh, yesterday. And so basically we had a huge run-up in housing. There was fear of missing out. There was speculation in both Toronto and Vancouver, uh, foreign buyers, all kinds of things feeling that. And that speculation has come out of the system now. So we've, what we're waiting for now is for the froth to completely be gone in those two markets. And we're back to basics. Uh, 
Uh, the rest of the country is seeing exactly the same interest rates, exactly the same mortgage rules, and the markets are functioning extremely well. So that suggests it's all about the froth. Okay? Uh, so we understand it better, but it needs a little more time for all that to uh, settle out. And uh, the last item was more fiscal policy, which is uh, not often that we talk about fiscal policy, but uh, the revision to the outlook for government spending in Ontario was sufficiently large that it affected our, our forecast for 2020, 2021. And so that too was you know, mentioned and, and debated a little bit about how, how important that might be. It's, it's not about what the policies are, it's just about the mechanics, it's arithmetic actually. If they spend less money, it, it feeds into our model and it means the economy will be just a little bit less strong than we thought before. Uh, but anyway, that's, those are the four things that we wrestled with. And you can tell they're all kind of negative things. And, and wow, <laughs> imagine that. But anyway, uh, so in that situation, it seems to us that uh, although all of that appears to be temporary, uh, we need time to let the data prove to us that it's temporary. And we, you know, we, we think that by mid-year, it'll be obvious. Okay. Let me unpack at least those last two considerations. The housing market in British Columbia and in Ontario, in Toronto and Vancouver, it's cooling off. Is that a, a policy-driven cool-off? Have the governments of the federal government, government of British Columbia, government of Ontario, got a handle on what was overheating those markets, or has it been a consumer-driven uh, relaxation in those markets? Okay, so the answer to almost any question that you could frame up would be yes. <laughs> and uh, because all of those things matter. I mean, both Toronto and Vancouver, and you know, we, we all know Vancouver's got a shortage of places to build houses. Yeah. Uh, in Toronto, it's less obvious, but you know, it's a, it's a very big city, and so actually you do, and all the zoning rules, et cetera. So there is a supply issue. So for example, the Toronto economy has been growing by about 5% per year. So that's driven by population growth, immigration, jobs growth, great strong economy. Wish we were all growing like that. Okay. Well, that's very basic demand for housing and the supply is not, has not been keeping up. So that's why prices would go up in the first place. But of course, if you're sitting there thinking, well, in the next three or four years, I'm gonna buy a house you see prices going up 10%, 12% per year. Fear of missing out takes over and you get in there and you get in the bidding wars and it, and it gets going. So this is what was going on in Toronto and Vancouver and it was fueled as well as we know by foreign buyers. So the policies that were put in place locally was to tax foreign buyers to try and limit some of the, that fallout. And at the same time, roughly, the new guidelines and mortgages came in, which meant you had to pass a two percentage point stress tax test when you're getting your mortgage, uh, and that took, we think, around 25% of people you know, out of the market for today, or at least at that price point. So they would need to search for something a little further out or a little less expensive or a little smaller, what have you. And they're adjusting in various ways. So um, that was, you know, it, none of those things, like the new mortgage underwriting guidelines, and of course interest rate rises at the same time, all play a role, but those things weren't intended to stop prices from rising. Uh, they were aimed at making sure that people who did borrow borrowed safely and that they would, they would be resilient if the economy had a shock, either a bad shock, unemployment rose, or if interest rates uh, rose as much as 2%. And uh, they seem to be working very well that way. And it just so happens at the same time, the speculation has kind of come out of those marketplaces for now. 
In other markets like Hong Kong and Sydney, we've seen examples like this before where it comes back because the fundamentals are still very strong. So we'll have to wait and see. Okay. And then the last thing on fiscal policy, um, uh, not assigning white or black hats to any, any, any uh, action by any government, but it, it was striking <coughs> to me in what you said. The government of Canada is increasing its spending. Yeah. as it has been. Yeah. The government of British Columbia is increasing spending. The government of Quebec is increasing spending. Yes. The Ontario government is restraining spending. And so much so, and the size of the Ontario economy is so great, that that in itself counteracts the expansive fiscal policy of those three other governments. Yes. And in fact, uh, it, it nets out to about a 0.2% of GDP slowdown. That's correct. Um, that's really striking. Well, I mean, I'm not going to judge it one way or the other. You, you, it depends on what your fiscal objectives are, of course. Uh, but it's just, as I said, just an arithmetic thing for us. We had uh, whatever announced policies are in place, we, we insert them into our models. So the previous government had, you know, growing expenditures in several categories. And uh, the new government has either lower or zero growth in some of those categories. And that just means one year, two years from now, there's less government spending planned. Uh, that's not about their policies or anything, it's just a mechanical thing. Uh, but yeah, it was large enough that it made a difference, like you say, 0.2 percentage points on GDP net, whereas we've used, been used to having a kind of a positive contribution from government for the last several years to growth uh, through infrastructure and all those kinds of things. Uh, so right now, the update shows that there's a slight drag on growth coming from the fiscal side. Okay. It's small. The upshot of all of these different considerations, including others that I haven't gone back to you on, uh, is that you had been raising interest rates yeah. step by step mm -hmm. since 2015, at a time when many observers found that policy of increasing interest rates to be quite audacious, and we all got used to it. And then since October, there have been no rate increases. Right. Uh, a little bit more than a year ago, in 2017, you said we're quite close to home and getting closer. Um, you're, turns out you weren't quite as close to home as you thought uh, at that time. What does home look like, and why aren't we quite there yet? Yeah, so home is my term. Uh, it's, it's, uh, home is, is, is a place where inflation is on target, running at 2%, and the economy is operating at its full potential. Uh, running at capacity, unemployment's about as low as you can expect it to be. And, and so in that situation, what we'd say is inflation would sustainably stay at 2%. So that's what home would sound like. Uh, we emphasize that home is not actually an address. It's more like a neighborhood. So there's, there's error terms around all of those things, you know, inflation 1% to 3%, not exactly 2 that sort of thing. But uh, so that we were actually, in that, uh, by that description, we were home through all of 2017 and, and most of 2018. The only thing that looked odd was that we were only home because interest rates were still extraordinarily low by historical standards. In fact, in, in inflation-adjusted terms, below zero. Which sounds hard to believe that, you know, I mean, somehow you need to get a negative rate of interest in order to have the economy performing at its normal place. Uh, so that suggested to us that there are headwinds still, forces acting on the economy, uh, that are continuing and we need lower interest rates to counteract them and keep us in that neighborhood. And hopefully then those forces would gradually dissipate and then interest rates by mother nature would gradually find their way up to something more normal 
and we think you know normal, and we call neutral when when interest rates are no longer stimulating or restraining growth, and sort of in a now we say two and a quarter to three and a quarter percent uh, for the for our interest rate, uh, and uh, so that would be getting everything home, and we never got there uh, because things have interfered as we've described in the, in your first question, and so new forces are acting. And uh, they're significant enough that actually they've opened up excess capacity in the economy again. Uh, not a lot, but enough uh, that it's uh, going to put downward pressure on inflation a year or a year and a half from now. And so what we've done is uh, we've analyzed all that and, as I said, concluded that that detour is that. It's a detour. It won't last that long. It's in the order of six months, a bit more, a couple of quarters. So Q4 and Q1, and actually we think the numbers from today are going to seem stronger to us. And in that case, that's a temporary effect on inflation and it won't matter. Uh, we'll be you know, on target if we keep interest rates where they are. And what we have to do then is wait to see if the data prove to us that we're right about that. And uh, assuming we are, then sometime down the road we'll be able to say, okay, now it's time to start normalizing again. But that remains to be seen. It's a very data-dependent uh, situation. Okay. Um, folks in my line of work sometimes talk about the looming recession. Is there a looming recession? No. I, I don't know why you talk about looming recessions. But anyway... Um, Have you met anyone in my line of work? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I still don't know why you talk about looming recessions. But... Uh, I know that some people would say, you know, historically there have been recessions uh, at least every 10 years, that kind of thing. So that does, does cause people to wonder, you know, how long can this last? That's, that's one way to pose the question. And uh, the answer is to look at the history of recessions, what has caused them. Uh, most, historically, most recessions historically have been caused by central banks tightening policy to offset inflation pressures. Um, and the others, and that's the, mo the two most recent ones, uh, have been caused by some form of imbalances that emerged that, you know, were disruptive. And so, the, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, housing bubble, you know, in, in uh, 2007, 2008 uh, is, is the obvious example. And that caused a global recession, the, the Great Recession, we call it now. And it was, you know, all the ingredients of the Second Great Depression. So you had all the G20 central banks and fiscal authorities putting, you know, loading all their photon torpedoes, like everything that they had, and averted that very successful piece of policymaking. Uh, it's been climbing out of that hole for the past 10 years. That makes it seem like a long time. But there's no, all, all we've got is, you know, here and there an imbalance that we're watching. But there's nothing to, uh, to signal that we're on the verge of anything like that. Um, President Trump has done a few things on, on, on tariffs especially mm -hmm. that I know preoccupy you. Is there any way that story could turn so sour as to provoke a new global recession? Oh, certainly. Um, I mean, when we, we think about the, uh, the, the gains uh, in uh, income and uh, living standards uh, that have been created by trade liberalization in the post-war period. Uh, to, to erase even a portion of those would be to, uh, to risk causing a recession, global one. 
Um, and it's, it's worse than that, Paul, in the sense that uh, just think about what, what, what a trade war looks like. You put tariffs on things. So we have, well, we have in real life, we have steel and aluminum tariffs. Well, um, you know, other countries don't ship enough steel and aluminum to the United States to just countervail and make a level playing field and make that even. What they think of is, well, how much revenue is the U U.S. government collecting on, on those tariffs? And now we need a bunch of tariffs that add up to the same amount of money to make it like an even battle. And so you end up putting tariffs on a whole bunch of other things, selected things, in order to put pressure on the United States to change their, change their policy. So you've distorted many prices like that, and, and all of them went up. So when the price of, of your favorite uh, item goes up, that means you have less money in your pocket for other things. So we know when you put tariffs on things, it makes people worse off. Now there may be a factory somewhere that's being protected by those, those things that actually stabilizes their employment and in some sense is better off. But we know that that's against the greater good. That's how trade liberalization works. So we're unwinding that. And the big problem with that that's even worse than how I've just described it is that, think about the slowdown in investment that I talked about before. When a company makes an investment, what are they doing? They're increasing their capacity to produce. They're making a more efficient operation. They stop doing that, what happens is the capacity of the economy to produce slows down. So it's what economists call supply shock. The ability of economies to grow is diminished at the same time that prices are rising. So you get what looks like a recession, but actually it isn't. It's structural. It's that the economy is slowing down forever, okay, while prices are rising. Now, most people think that if that happens, central banks will just cut rates and everything will be okay again. And I can assure you it's not nearly that simple. Uh, that it's just like Brexit, it's a supply shock of that type too. And so it's not a no-brainer what is the right policy. In fact, monetary policy is not really able to offset that kind of shock. So it's, it's truly unfortunate that all that, those gains are, are being put at risk. Uh, I'm one of those, I'm, I'm a positive thinker, I think. Everybody understands this well enough that deals will be made and that we will come out of this. And that's going to be a boost to the world economy when that uncertainty lifts. But of course, it is possible that it escalates, in which case it's the opposite. But right now, we're somewhere in between. Modest direct effects, but the big one is sentiment. And that means we could turn it around pretty quickly with a, a resolution of those stresses. The situation you described where um, um, uh, productive capacity uh, does not increase as inflation does increase uh, is why you've been using a term that I haven't heard since I was in high school, yeah. which is stagflation. Right. Um, so there you go. I haven't heard it since I was at, in university at Queen's. So. <laughs> but anyway, but yes, it's, it's the 1970s. Uh, it, it was was exactly that. The reason why we had the great inflation of the 1970s. There are lots of contributing reasons. The monetary expansion came from financing the Vietnam War, and of course the gold, the, the Bretton Woods system was was crumbling. So all those things were important factors. Read Paul Volcker's memoir; it's fantastic on this. But but uh, what's more important is that central banks thought, oh, you know, the economy's slowing. So they kept interest rates low in order to offset those forces. And since it was a supply disturbance, not a demand disturbance. 
uh, that caused inflation just to accumulate. And it took a very long time to get that out of the system and get our economies functioning normally again. Uh, so that's, that's why we call it stagflation. Economy slows, inflation rises. And, uh, and actually, the best tool then is for a central bank to say, no, 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 that's not going to happen again. Uh, you know, we may have to even raise interest rates in this situation, not lower them, in order to prove that we care a lot about that 2% inflation target. That's what it's meant to do, keep you out of trouble. Okay. And again, to back up just a little bit and make sure I understood what you said, the response to, the, uh, to Trump's initial tariff, the... the, the, the um, the rebuttal that was offered by yeah. Canada's government and many other governments um, compounds the effect of those tariffs. Oh, absolutely it does. Uh, but, you know, you have to ask, well, if, if it's going to make, make the story worse, why? Well, you, you know, the, I don't think there's really a choice in that because your, your, your companies are put uh, on an unlevel playing field and, of course, everybody's saying, well, no, you've got to somehow keep us even. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's politics. It's a very, it's a very hard job to do. Um, it, and it's, you know, the only real way out of it is for people to understand that any war is, is counterproductive. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's get that job done and get these things signed up. Uh, all the time that's passing is not without cost either, right? So it's not like... We're not paying a cost until it happens. We're paying a cost now. In fact, last fall, when, when people were asking you about all the bad things that could happen, people in my line of work, mm -hmm. um, you were saying, yeah, but there's upside possibilities too, and we have to, you know, yep. and, and, and what you kept repeating as an upside example was the end of NAFTA uncertainty and the arrival of a deal. But that hasn't paid off as much as one might have hoped because... Yeah. It's not ratified. It right. could conceivably not be ratified. And meanwhile, the tariffs have stayed on, perhaps against expectations. Yes. So, so far, uh, it hasn't worked out uh, as, as we hoped. Uh, but if we go back a year, from, a year ago, uh, markets were, were completely convinced that there would never be progress on it. And that's, you know, I, I know it did seem grim at the time. At the time, we said, well, I don't think we should assume the worst-case scenario. Uh, right now, we've got some issues like slow investment because people are uncertain. But if we get this thing, if, if the government's able to negotiate uh, a, a new NAFTA, Kuzma, we call it. Usmaca, uh, actually, is my preferred pronunciation. Usmaca? Yeah. Well, that's, that's sort of an American term, but I, I think we, around here, we're calling it Kuzma. But anyway... <laughs> uh, but, but, but the, point, the point is that, uh, as a policymaker, I can't be sitting there thinking, oh, I've got to make policy based on the worst scenario I can think of. Uh, nor, of course, can I ch choose the, the best scenario. I have to be thinking about that risk on both sides and thinking, you know, all right, so if they do sign, well, the economy is going to get a boost, and so we've got to be you know, positioned for that. And, or if it, if it does get torn up, then we're going to have a negative thing. But let's not go to the two fences. And uh, we were, I think we were the only ones that said, you know, hang on, let's, let's have a balanced approach to this. And sure enough, a couple of months later, we got a signature. And you could just feel the relief in corporate Canada. That was, was fantastic. Uh, then I think what happened was there was talk about whether, you know, the, the, in order to level the playing field on taxes, maybe the government would do something about accelerated capital depreciation, that sort of thing. And so I think investment 
didn't pick up yet. It, it just sort of waited to see if that, and it did happen, right? It happened in the fall economic statement. And so we're expecting to see stronger investment coming as the new year data. And we have, don't have any new investment data yet from 2019. We're expecting it to be stronger. Our surveys of companies from our, our boss, uh, the, the Outlook survey, it suggests strong investment intentions. So uh, of course, if you're highly influenced by Kuzma or not Kuzma, you might still be hesitating. But there's lots of companies that aren't you know, reliant uh, purely on that. So I'm expecting to see investment numbers come in uh, pretty well. Uh, and that's investment and then capacity to export more. That's exactly what we need as the engine of growth. Uh, less housing, you know, because housing has moderated as we expected it would. All of this is a preoccupation of yours professionally and academically, which is modeling uncertainty. Yes. Uh, getting better at understanding what you don't know is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, central banks in the past have erred on the side of overconfidence? in their predictions? Uh, I, think, I think central bankers have a habit of, of trying to identify the risks on both sides of their, of their, uh, their calls. And, and uh, I mean, if you go back to you know, years and years of monetary policy reports, they always say here at the back, you know, here's the five or six risks that we're monitoring. And there's always some that are positive and some are negative. So they can say, you know, we think this is a, a balanced forecast. I mean, no, no good forecaster is going to give you a, a biased forecast, uh, not intentionally. And so, for sure, not in a policy space. So, uh, I don't think that, uh, but, but methodologically, though, what we do is we say, okay, there are the risks. Now, let's just pretend they aren't going to happen. And so, all the risks collapse to zero, and then we make policy based on that. And then we say, okay, there's the policy. And then the risks happen of one form or another. Uh, we can do a better job of it today by modeling it, as you suggested, directly, which is to say it's more a question of not doing the optimal thing, but rather doing a risk-managed thing. And so the example of NAFTA is a really good one because, you know, if we believed, you know, the way the markets were acting, well, we would have been maybe thinking about cutting, cutting rates because it looked like the economy was going to slow. Well, it didn't until we got to the end of the year, and that's really the oil thing and the global thing. So we already had the NAFTA uncertainty captured. So I think it, it would have been a mistake to have ignored the, that risk uh, and, and balancing it as a positive versus negative. Um, anyway, uh, it's, I'm making it sound more scientific than it is. It's, it's a very judgmental thing, okay? Uh, so I'll fess up to that. Okay. Um, more of an art than a science? Well, it's, it's, there's lots of science in it. So, I mean, I, I don't mean that it's all suddenly all art, but what I, what I do mean is that we can often make it sound more mechanical or hard science than, than it actually is. You know, in practice, there's an awful lot of, you know, there's a lot of micro judgments and they all add up to a big judgment and in the end you put an overlay and you're asking yourself, well, what are the big mistakes that I'm missing that, that could really throw off this policy decision? And that's what I mean by risk management. You, 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 you guard against that as opposed to just assuming it won't happen. Okay. Um, this may be a, the moment to ask a question I've been, I've been wondering. What makes a young economic student want to grow up to be a central bank president? Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I went to school, uh, I grew up in Oshawa, and I went to Queens in 74. I know that sounds like a really long time ago to you, 
but uh, it doesn't seem that long, really. But I went there to become a doctor, um, and uh, and took all the pre-med courses and stuff. But when you get into that, those pre life sciences courses, they always say, well, you know, you can take four of these, but you have to you have to pick something else as an option. And I couldn't, for life, me figure out what to take. You know, I I always liked math and science. That's all I really wanted to do. And somebody talked me into just trying economics. It was just a, stro a stroke of luck, actually. So I fell in love. It's like somebody introduced somebody introduces you to somebody and you fall in love with them. And you think, oh, how did that happen? You know. So anyway, uh, it's the same thing with uh, with a subject like that. And so I, I still could have. I did everything I had to do to apply to med school, but never did. So I just stayed with economics. And in 1974, when I first figured out what it is the Bank of Canada was and what it does, I thought, yeah. That's, that's where I'd like to go, yeah. And uh, it's, it's funny how you just sort of captivated me. And so that's been a really long quest. <laughs> but I went there right out of school in 1981. I went there in 1978 as a summer student. I've had a long association with the bank. Um, Thiessen, Dodge, Carney, your immediate predecessors, <clears throat> uh, basically since you got into the the the, the bank economist game, what would you say are their greatest hits? What, what, what are the things that the bank governors have done in the last generation that have had a real effect on the Canadian economy? Wow, okay. Well, so I, I worked for Bowie, Crow, Thiessen, I never, never worked, uh, I worked with David when he was at finance, but anyway. Um, and so there, there is a list of greatest hits there. It's a good way to put it. I mean, if we go back all the way to Bowie, it was, the wrestling with inflation and deciding, you know, we've got to target money, which was the fashion in the macroeconomics world. And, and when I first came to the bank, that was what they were wrestling with. And we ended up uh, proving that it wouldn't work very well. I mean, that, that launched the quest for the next thing, which was inflation targets. So I was in the research team that did all that. And, uh, and then it was Crow brought that across the finish line. And, uh, and, and brought that orthodoxy and, 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 and very, uh, very uh, tough-mindedness to it. And, and sure enough, you know, that, that was a very difficult uh, period. Uh, Gordon was, uh, you know, by then inflation was mostly wrestled to the ground, not quite to the ground. Uh, but his big move was, I think, transparency. Uh, he, he created the governing council, for one thing, which is something I admired at the time. And, and now I'm very happy that it, because, you know, a governor was always sort of a personalized thing, and the idea is have a governing council so that it's a team. And, uh, and I think that's something we've achieved in the last uh, few years, the visibility of the team, uh, deputy governors giving update speeches, talking to the media, and, of course, the senior deputy governor acting much, almost full-time as a policymaker rather than as a COO. Uh, so that's been a great innovation, I think, and, and it's made the teamwork look great. I mean, Dodge, you know, admired from outside, and uh, and then of course Carney came along and, and did the did the, right at the time of the crisis. That was uh, kind of a crisis made made for him. I mean, he he masterminded that, and and uh, so that was I was on a couple of blocks away at EDC and watched that pretty close at hand. So anyway, everybody's got something. Um, and so far, no crisis, that's, and, that's, and that's okay with me. Yeah, it's okay with me. Did you worry about the shoes you'd have to fill when, when Carney left, when, when went off to play with Aerosmith or whatever it is he's doing now? 
Oh, no, not really. I mean, I, you know, I, I had the advantage of having grown up in the bank. I had a sense of what the role, you know, looked like from the inside and had, had been able to observe several governors pretty closely and uh, knew that, you know, different conditions would give different uh, settings. Uh, but, you know, there's no question. I mean, do you remember who it was who replaced Wayne Gretzky when he retired? No. No. I, would, I wouldn't know. That's what I'm saying. So, you know, I, I run into people on the street and they ask me, hey, hey, how's Mark? <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, great, and I'm doing okay, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Um, uh, I assume you speak to him not, uh, not as the guy who needs to keep tabs on Carney but as central bank governor to central bank governor. Yes. The level of coordination among bank governors is higher than usual, I expect, in, in a weird time. It's very high. I mean, I, I, I would say there's always been a tradition of that. The, the Basel meetings, you know, are uh, basically every second month, uh, around six to eight weeks apart. And, and you know, at least the, uh, the, the, the 15 biggest ones have dinner together, and there's a wide open uh, conversation. You know, what happens in Basel stays in Basel that kind of thing, and that's extraordinarily positive. It's very useful to know just what it is. It's on Jay's mind or, or Mark's mind or, or Mario's, you know, so that you know which, what's the, what are they wrestling with, what's next, uh, you know, and, and, you, and you share war stories, right? So it's very, very cool. Yeah. Is there a feeling of being sort of the groundskeepers during the world's biggest frat party? There's this guy. <laughs> There's this president who is doing wildly unpredictable things when you are the stewards of predictability. So I'm not going to repeat the premise that was in that question. But, it, but you know, there's, there's no question that, uh, you know, uh, politics has intruded uh, in many dimensions more than normal. I mean, there's, there's you know, in any, in any given year, there's always some geopolitical risk that erupts or whatever. It's hardly ever in one of our major countries. Uh, the, uh, so politics has definitely become a much bigger factor in trying to figure out what's going to happen next and what are the, what are the risks that we face. Uh, but you know, in the end, it's, it's, you know, I think we may be overcomplicating it. I mean, we, I think the experience of what we went through after the crisis kind of gave people an exaggerated impression of what central banks can do for them. Uh, our, our ability to control all these things and keep them under, under, uh, under control is, is kind of a little too lofty in most people's minds. That's why we chose inflation targets. It was like, it doesn't sound that hard, and yet it is pretty hard, and it is the one thing that we can contribute to a more stable environment for people to make decisions in. And all the other things that you might raise, I mean, there's somebody else's job. I mean, central banks only have one tool, and we can only aim at one thing, and that, and that, is, that is the most important thing. And so uh, all the other things that they think we can take care of, well, not, not actually. We can be good advisors, and uh, if people are, are ready to, to listen to it. Okay. Um, we've all also had to learn that the president's Twitter account is not synonymous with the government, the U.S. administration's action. But he is frequently highly critical of your counterpart at the Fed ah. and has uh, <clears throat> hinted that he might um, constrain the autonomy of the Fed by replacing the chair. Right. Um, is, do you find yourself having to explain why 
independent central banks are a good thing more than you might otherwise have, have, have had to do? Yes, and here we are. Uh, Why are independent central banks a good thing, sir? <laughs> so, I mean, the topic is in the air, and I think, I think partly I would, I would not blame all of this on one, uh, one individual. I would say, go back to what I said a moment ago. I think the experience from 2008 till now has given people an exaggerated impression of what central banks can achieve. Uh, you know, you've seen the, the book, The Only Game in Town, and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's, you know, I said, ex exaggerated, and, and, you know, central banks can't be made accountable for more than a limited number of things. And so, I think if people think we're actually in charge of lots of things, well, naturally, in a democratic society, people say, well, we need more influence, you know, as, as elected officials over what those things are. If we're clear about it, really, uh, we're in a position to provide a stable macroeconomic environment, and that's about it. And it's, inflation is the main way to do that. And if you, if you think about that, well, that's, well, there's nothing much to argue about there. Uh, central banks were created because there was a presumption that governments would always prefer more inflation, especially towards election times. That would goose the economy, and, and if the inflation came, it would come after the election, you know, and all oh, that's some other issue, right? And so central banks were created to guard against that, and it's the independence that makes sure that that line doesn't get crossed. But independence is uh, it's kind of a relative concept. You know, it's, in, here in Canada, we have inflation target agreement with the federal government, and we have operational independence to pursue that. Uh, but that, that setting every five years is a matter of public debate and so on. So, and we are accountable to parliament. You know, I have to go next week I'm going to go sit in, sit in a committee in Parliament, uh, both the House and then the Senate the next day. That's our accountability framework. Um, and, you know, yesterday I had to explain everything in a press conference, and that's all part of the, the accountability of the public. So I think there's a lot of checks and balances there. Um, so I think independence is a good thing. It's, if, it, if, it, if markets thought it was actually being eroded, then what you'd see is investors would say, I'm worried about there might be a surge of inflation, you know, in election year, say in 2020, for example. And uh, they would demand a premium uh, to lend the U.S. government money, right? And we would all notice that. All the bond yields in the world would go up if that were the case. Right now, term premium are as low as they can go. But if they started to widen out because of inflation risk, then every citizen everywhere would pay the price for that to finance the debt. So uh, we all have a stake in, the, in that, uh, that inflation control. Uh, I'll tell you one last thing okay, on this uh, independence thing. When was the last time you were in a Chinese restaurant and you got a fortune cookie that actually meant something to you? Not nearly often enough. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to show well, you here something. Here we go. <laughs> so six weeks ago, <clears throat> when you know, all that hype was going on, I got this at the Mandarin Ogilvy just down the road. And you can read it out to the folks. You are independent politically. <laughs> so, my answer to that question is, Confucius say, okay? I thought that was quite a stroke of luck, actually. You don't, you don't get that every day. That's almost the strangest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's a keeper, keeping my wallet for a while, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you talk about transparency. One element of transparency is even giving 
uh, press conferences like yesterday's. It used yeah. to be that the bank didn't didn't explain yeah. when it wasn't changing rates. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, we've made that a habit, and uh, you know, in a, in a few weeks we'll do the financial stability report, financial system report, the FSR. We'll do a press conference for that. We do press press conferences after the speeches, and again, that's all part of that dialogue. The other thing we've done uh, in the last uh, four to four or five years is we've uh, we've scientifically made our reports and our press releases and speeches uh, more readable. Say so using those tools, but you know, what grade level are you uh, writing at? And you know, they used to be you know sort of really advanced. Uh, very subtle stuff, and uh, I remember the old joke, uh, I don't know, a governor who I, I won't name told me, Steve, I do all my best writing between the lines. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought, well, there, that's part of the art, isn't it? Uh, we don't do that anymore. We're, we're, we try to be straightforward and clear, and you know, we're, we're, we're aiming sort of at, you know, for sure in a sort of a high school kind of zone, so people can say, that, I get it, that's, that's no problem for me to, to appreciate what it is you're up to. So those are, those are elements of transparency. The other thing is the opening statement uh, after, after our deliberations. We used to just read the press release, more or less. Uh, well, you can already read the press release. But now we have an opening statement that, uh, that I or Carolyn write just, just before uh, we go before the media. And that summarizes the things that the governing council has deliberated in detail. Uh, what issues were really, that's the four things you named before. And uh, that too is like, sort of like minutes, but if you ever looked at central bank minutes, like they're gargantuan and again, impossible to decipher. Uh, thousands and thousands of words, and our minutes would be like that too, it wouldn't be very useful. But I think what we've provided there is a, a capsule that allows people to understand, yeah, I can see how you debate that for a couple of days before you you chose not to raise interest rates or whatever. The um, equivalent of the governing council for the Fed, the FOMC, yes. actually releases its minutes yes. so, some months down the line. Yes. Uh, governing council minutes never become public. Is that yeah. something that could change? Well, there, there aren't minutes. Uh, and there's, there's a difference in the sense that uh, the FOMC, there's a number of people who represent constituencies, right? That's uh, the history of that structure. And we don't have that. We just have uh, six experts around the table. Um, we don't think of ourselves as representing any particular area or anything. And so I think that gives a much more free-for-all debate for us. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want the kinds of debates that I have minuted. And, and so, of course, they wouldn't be, would they? What would happen would be we would have more formal, this is what I believe and here are the reasons, and that would be in a minute, and you'd be like, oh, well, that's, I heard that before. And uh, so there, I don't think, I think the, the system we have of checks and balances is at least as good as the one you're describing. I don't think publishing minutes really adds anything to it. I wanna, we've got a bit more than 10 minutes left. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, uh, the, 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 the next thing I wanna talk about is big, uh, and so we got some time. Okay. Uh, which is what, what are we even talking about when we talk about the Canadian economy? And what spurs that is a speech that you gave uh, in Nunavut uh, three weeks ago. Calwit, yeah. In Calwit. And um, you, um, you talked about the extent to which services and sophisticated human interaction is a, a, a huge chunk of the Canadian economy. Yes. 
it's common around here because of frustration over pipelines to say that um, Canada is becoming a bad uh, investment risk because big projects don't don't get anywhere in Canada. Mm -hmm. And yet the argument you made is that um, those sorts of projects, making big things, um, are, are, are not where the game is, they're not where the growth is, and they're not, uh, they're not the only consideration when we, when we talk about the Canadian economy. So maybe you just run with that for a bit. Sure. Um, by the way, aren't I lucky? You know, I, when they say, you're going to give six speeches in a year, where would you like to give them? And I got to spend a couple of days in Iqaluit and, and took a dog sled ride and that sort of thing. That was very cool. And everywhere I go, I meet hardworking people building businesses out of thin air, and it's, it's fantastic. And uh, most of those businesses that are being built out of thin air are in some sense uh, or some way connected to what we now loosely call the digital economy. And uh, so I think profoundly uh, we are digitalizing more and more of our economy. Uh, it takes, could take the form of automation in some areas uh, or artificial intelligence in others. Um, but, but what's more, more to the point is that the, you know, no means, no, you know, oil, for example, is always going to be a really important part of it. It's $80 billion a year. It's, 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 it's our biggest export. It's, it's not going to change. It, may, it, has to, it can't grow much until we get a pipeline, but it's still there every, every single day. Uh, we, we'd be missing that money, you know, if that wasn't happening. But on top of that, where is the where is new growth coming from? It is coming from the, the service side of the economy, and by services, Often people start thinking like, you know, you know, the person that served you a coffee or whatever, which of course is a legitimate, uh, legitimate, legitimate job. But no, uh, we're talking about the big growth areas, the fastest growing areas are IT services. This is the largest export growth category uh, is IT services. It's the highest growth in employment. We're talking an economy that's growing around 7 to 8% per year. And if we take... Uh, IT, engineering, professional services, uh, and as well, tourism, which sounds like low grade, you know, the, the person at the ski or whatever. But no, tourism uh, includes all education services, which is, you know, a huge business for us. Foreign students, and they come not just paying tuition, they're spending four years here or what have you, and spending all that money too. So that's all tracked. Those are really big exports. And uh, so nowadays, uh, something like over 20, close to 25% of our exports are services. Our economy is over 80% services. Uh, the other 20% is manufacturing and resources and so on. Still matters very much. We'd miss that 20% uh, terribly. But I, uh, what I illustrated in Callaway is if we take the, the key services that would include those things in healthcare, uh, you know, which are you know, growing fast, about 50% of the economy is growing by almost 5% per year. Now the other 50% of the economy is growing much more slowly, and some of it is actually working hard, like in the oil sector, you know, to overcome headwinds. Uh, but it's important to know that we have kind of like two economies going on out there, both very important, but where is the growth going to come from in the future? I see all that, those prospects are coming from that service side. And uh, some of it is hard to measure. It may be bigger already than we think. Uh, and, you know, I'm just hearing today about companies, you know, today they, 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 don't, they don't invest in servers and have a back office. They just pay a monthly fee to a company 
uh, and the stuff's all in the cloud. Well, where's the investment gone? The investment doesn't happen anymore. Some company bought servers, but now they don't need half as many servers because you know, you, your server's only not even half full, right? So uh, a company can provide all those services in a economies of scale way. Is it captured properly? Well, so far it's, it's, it's a project in progress. So I think one of these days we're gonna discover we were, we were building a lot more prosperity than we thought as our data improve in this modern economy. Okay. I wanna first test the, the, the question about natural resources, including oil. Um, you're not sure the growth is there in the future, even if we get a pipeline oh, built? Oh, no, 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 there, there would be, I, I think though the growth is, is more an or, organic growth, you know, that we would expect to see. I mean, the, the global oil market grows perhaps 2% per year. Um, and with, a, with extra pipeline capacity, we could bump up to a, a higher output level. Uh, that's, that's true, but we, we have to be mindful that the U.S. The US uh, uh, oil sector is growing by leaps and bounds. That uh, won't last forever, of course, but uh, the whole scene is changing. Uh, but on the resource side, you know, the food sector has, has extraordinary promise uh, there. Uh, the planet is still growing and food is a, is a key issue. Uh, simple things like fertilizer, potash, that sort of thing. These are big growth opportunities uh, for Canada and, uh, and they're actually happening. So, I mean, I think, I think we should be quite, have a very positive outlook uh, for our economy. And on, the, on the, the, the rest of the picture, the fact that 80% of the economy is in services. My ears perked up when I read that because um, uh, the, the, the music director of the orchestra here, the fantastic conductor services. of the orchestra, yeah. is, which is services, yeah. is uh, Alexander Shelley, who's a young Brit who spent most of his career in Germany. And because he's uh, curious and uh, he knows I'm a journalist, he keeps asking me, what does Canada make? What does it build? What does it export? Mm -hmm. And being Germany, he expects it, the answer to be heavy machinery and stuff. stuff. Yeah. stuff. yeah. And I, I always feel stupid when he asks me that question. <laughs> and the answer is what we serve, what, yeah. we, what we make and build and, and, and export and sell is sophisticated human interaction. Yeah. Uh, uh, banking, tourism, yes. education. How do we safeguard that if that's where the growth is? Well, I, you know, safe, you safeguard that, I think, by reminding yourself how you got there. And I think these, we've seen good signs on this. So you get there by having the right, the right skills in your workforce. So education is the best investment that can be made to continue to grow those businesses. And indeed, uh, education in a broader sense for those who may get stressed or, or need to redeploy because of automation or the digital economy. We need to be ready as a society to make significant investments in those things. They will pay off big time for us. We don't have to uh, be skimpy on, the, on those files. How is Canada doing on that front? Well, my impression is a very positive one. And we're building a huge reputation in some of these fields that, you know, where they're, you know, AI is, is a classic example, or quantum computing, or for that matter, uh, things that are as, as ordinary as engineering services. We're, we're class in this. You look at financial services, our, our firms, uh, the banks and insurance companies, were pioneers in exporting those services. Uh, so huge businesses, you know, half the revenue of a given bank comes from offshore. An entire building in downtown Toronto full of people that administer a business that's actually outside of Canada. Well, that means all that managerial talent is an export. We don't count it as an export. 
It's just people on the payroll of that bank. But it is an export. You're in your last year as the central bank governor? Uh, yeah. Uh, by my, my mandate uh, ends about a year from now, yeah. Uh, are you expecting smooth sailing from here to the uh, exit door? <laughs> well, according to our forecast, the answer is yes. Um, I'll try and do what I can not to jinx it. Um, our time here has uh, run out. I really want to thank you for giving us this sophisticated but understandable overview of how the Canadian economy is doing. I want to thank our sponsors at the Canadian Bankers Association, our partners at CPAC, and the National Arts Centre. I want to thank all of you for coming out tonight. Uh, we have a, a reception next door. I hope you can come and join us. And I want to thank Stephen Polos for being our guest tonight. It was my pleasure, Paul. Thank you. <laughs>